Okay, welcome uh, to Labrie. This is probably the first time for some of you to be here. My name is Clark, and I'm the director of Canadian Labrie, and I'll be speaking with you tonight, but you're always welcome to come here on Fridays. We have a free public meal, and a lot of you took advantage of that tonight, and I'm so glad. Uh, there's always plenty, and it's always uh, fun if you like small talk, um, but, but this is a place where you can have deep talk. Now, Labrie is a place where uh, we are um, an organization that really works out of home, and we are uh, Christian, and we believe that Christianity is true, that the Bible gives us sufficient grounds uh, to believe so, and, and we trust in God's Spirit to, to illuminate our minds. <clears throat> but the people who come to Labrie, these short-term guests, come and they may not be Christian, and I do not assume that you are Christian here. Uh, people come with a wide variety of questions, and uh, they find that sometimes the discussions that we enter into are quite difficult uh, because we get to jump in really deep, really quickly. Uh, it's really wonderful just to get to see hearts meeting hearts, eyes meeting eyes, and having these difficult conversations. And it's something that I really am sad to see that there's not a lot of civil discussion these days. Uh, it's very easy to, um, as soon as the discussion gets past Adidas, I don't even know if Adidas, is there anything going on with Adidas? I, <laughs> no. That was supposed to be an innocent <laughs> example. But every time you turn on the news, there's some corporation that's guilty of something. But uh, it's very difficult sometimes to have civic discussions over anything important, particularly moral issues or things that we hold to be very, very um, uh, important in our personal lives, but even in the, the lives around us and in society. Uh, so... That's what Labrie is for, and it happens to be the topic that we're talking about tonight. <clears throat> so my title is, well, I don't know if you, this is still on Jonathan Haidt. Uh, that's how you pronounce his name, H-I-D-T. Uh, I changed my title to make it a little bit more provocative. <laughs> um, it's, it's called New Left Brain, Alt-Right Brain. Uh, a look at evolution of morality and evolution of politics and a biblical response. Uh, because you might not know who Jonathan Haidt is, but you might know what evolution, morality, and politics are. Uh, but that's really the essence of what he's having to talk about. So, so just so you know, I'm going to be talking about this book, Jonathan Haidt's uh, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided Over Politics and Religion. Okay. And so it's, it's a really wonderful uh, book. I recommend it. Uh, he, um, I'll be explaining a bit more about who he is. <clears throat> but I want to get to the title. <clears throat> you can look at this as I talk, because I don't have a PowerPoint. And for those of you who like to look at things, um, look at that. <laughs> okay. I don't have a laser pointer, but it's right there. <laughs> So let me explain a little bit what my title is, uh, especially the new left brain, alt-right brain. Uh, I'm, I'm playing off the language left brain, right brain. Do you remember that language? Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, the left brain is, a, is apparently uh, more analytical, mathematical. The right side of the brain is the more creative aspect. Uh, but people are predisposed toward one or the other. This is now a, an idea that people call a myth or, or it's, not, it's not as stable, but people still understand that. Well, I'm talking about new left brain, alt-right brain. 
So I'm playing off those words to say that people are, or at least I'm playing off what height is getting at, is that people are genetically predisposed to their political and religious views. <clears throat> so we're going to get into that. <clears throat> also, you might be wondering why I'm looking at my... Uh, my little notepad is because my computer broke down, and so, but you're about to be amazed at my skills. <laughs> but, you know, uh, Height would say that people who tend toward more adventure, uh, they like novelty in life, are predisposed, not predetermined, but predisposed toward liberalism. And people who like things neat, uh, Josh was telling me that people who don't like their foods touching on their plate, if you like to stay at home, if you like to keep things clean, you tend to be more conservative. Uh, I wonder how true that is. It's not saying you're predetermined to be that way. You're predisposed. Uh, and so what has happened is it's evolved us to have what he calls righteous minds. Righteous minds. He said that he wanted to refer to it as moral mind, but it didn't quite suit because righteous mind, he says, that not only are we intrinsically moral, we're intrinsically moralistic, mm. critical, judgmental. So not only do we think that we're right in our way, we also expect other, be, other people to be right in the way that we think. And, uh, but he wants to say that we are so divided in our ideas and our moralisms, our righteousness from the right and from the left, but there's a common heritage for us. It's evolution. We have a common evolutionary heritage. That can be observed, um, observed through science. And so he wants to say that we have a shared moral foundations. We all share similar morals. We might emphasize some more than others. We might have different emphases on each one. We might have some that are more important than others, and some might just not be that important. But he wants to say that we have a common moral heritage that has been given to us from evolution. And so he wants to help us have a common basis in which to have civil discussion. So we're going to see what he thinks about that. <clears throat> and so the better we understand um, this common ground, uh, this observed truth of what evolution has given us, then we, have a, then we can understand why we feel so moralistic about things, and then we can understand why someone else would feel moralistic about something. Um, how a liberal person might understand why a conservative feels uh, so outraged at, uh, at, uh, at an abortion. And then you might have the conservative person. Is this the right for you guys? Okay. And on the left side, you have someone who is horrified that, uh, that you wouldn't give the woman the right over her body. And so you have this right. And he's like, well, we can actually come to a, a common understanding if we understand what morals are at work, what kind of foundations we have. And evolution has given us those things to predispose us to them. Now, this is just an introduction. If it's getting too philosophical, too heady for you, just raise your hand and ask me. Don't hesitate to interrupt if it has to do with my talk. <laughs> uh, but other kind of questions we can have later. And I want to see if Azel has any questions later, okay? Uh, she's not yet one, <clears throat> but she already has a righteous mind, apparently. <laughs> so... Uh, what I'm amazed about with Jonathan Haidt, um, I, I'm really excited about discussing with him because it's, it's rare for someone to uh, not only to suggest this, he's not preaching uh, to kind of rally his tribe. Um, he is Jewish, he's liberal, and he's atheist. 
And yet his book is an argument for conservatism and religion as important for society. So he's already taking a step forward to try to hand on, on the olive branch. And so I want to do him due credit, and I'm really thankful that he made this first step. And I want to engage with his thoughts, and I hope that we can engage with him and with one another well in the same way. What makes each other tick? <clears throat> so we'll see how he gets there. I'm going to look. So this is just the layout of the lecture. If you're conservative, you want nice order. If you're more liberal, you probably don't care where I'm going. <laughs> um, you just let it flow and enjoy it. Uh, so the order is that I'm going to talk about his argument, kind of lay out how he got there. And it's a three-part argument, which I'll explain in a minute. And then I'll talk about his conclusion. And then I'm going to uh, give a response as, okay, how, how might I think about what Haidt has to say as a Christian? Okay. And then we'll have a discussion. We'll open it up for discussion. But like I said, please interrupt um, if I get too heady or say words that I shouldn't say <clears throat> uh, that are too tricky. <laughs> okay, so he has, uh, he breaks up his lecture, I mean his book, into three parts. Uh, and he has, these are my words, not his words. He wants to deal with moral intuitions. And then the second part is dealing with moral foundations. And the last one is dealing with moral communities. So he wants to talk about how, how we move from intuition to foundations to moral communities based upon it. And so you can see how this movement. He says that it could be three different books. Uh, there's a lot there. It looks quite popular. Oh. It looks quite popular. <clears throat> but it can be heady, but it is accessible at the same time. I mean, I, I, it's, it's enjoyable. Um, and so I, I recommend that. Okay, moral intuitions. Let me take the PowerPoint down for a second to read from it. And I'm going to give you a couple stories. I want you to think about this. How do you think that this is morally wrong? Okay. A family's dog was killed by a car in front of their house. They had heard that dog meat was delicious. So they cut up the dog's body and cooked it and ate it for dinner. Nobody saw them do this. Okay, just sit on that. Don't answer. But do you think that's immoral? Let's see if I can find this other one. I think it's impractical. <laughs> impractical. Jesus. So you're practically immoral. <laughs> okay, here's a little bit more uh, of... Um, there's some that I can't read. They're just too challenging for such a group. But this is pretty challenging, okay? Julie and Mark, who are sister and brother, are traveling together in France. They are both on summer vacation from college. One night, they are staying alone in a cabin near the beach. They decide that it would be interesting and fun if they tried making love. At the very least, it would be a new experience for each of them. Julie is already taking birth control pills, but Mark uses a condom too just to be safe. They both enjoy it, but they decide not to do it again. They keep that night as a special secret between them, which makes them feel even closer to each other. So what do you think about this? Was it wrong for them to have sex? Okay. Now, he gave some of these, and, uh, and he says that he did it in front of McDonald's, and some of them are like, do I have to explain to you why that's wrong? <laughs> but a lot of university students said, well, if it didn't hurt anyone, how can I say 
it's wrong. If they haven't hurt anyone, if they haven't harmed anyone, it's their choice, then how can I say it's wrong? Upon what do I stand? And uh, there was even an interview with a woman who was Catholic, and they were asking her, does she think it's morally wrong? She's like, absolutely. And they're like, why do you think it's wrong? Well, it's just, it's just wrong. And the more this guy pressed her to try to give a reasons for why she thought it was wrong, she couldn't. And she said, this is crazy. I just, I just don't know. And so she didn't even understand her own moral foundations, you might say. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but he's trying to make a point that sometimes we, we have this intuition, we have this intuitive response morally without necessarily knowing why. Why? And his book is primarily, interestingly, aimed at his own tribe, as you might say. Uh, his, his primary audience that he's trying to have a discussion with is the liberal atheist. Okay? He's not arguing to the religious person or the conservative person, which I would say predominantly is here. So you might have a different response than the University of Penn, uh, Pennsylvania students. But maybe if you, if you imagine those questions being asked at University of Victoria, University of Calgary, maybe that's totally different, I'm not sure. But, uh, but you have this sense that what might people think about this? Is this moral or not? So where does morality come from? That's his question. We have these intuitions, and then these reasons seem to follow. So he says that morality is, could be considered innate, that God has given it to you, or has been downloaded from the sky, from the form, perfect forms, from Plato's ideas. He goes, so a lot of people think it's the blank slate theory, where children are born a blank slate, and morality is developed through experience, and just you're hurt, you're helped, and those kind of things that as you go along, that's how morality is developed. But predominantly, it's been rationalism. That the idea is that we have discussions. What is justice? We have these discussions, and we work out what is morality. What is truth? What is goodness? And we have these very philosophical discussions to try to understand what it means to be moral and how it is to be moral. But he wants to push against this. He wants to push against this because he says that, as he observed, is that People do not have reasons when they think of, when they hear these kind of stories, they have immediate reactions. It's not that they've reasoned through. Reason comes behind. It, he calls it usually a post hoc fabrication. It's something that you make up after you feel it. And so he really wants to argue that morality has come from this kind of intuitive set, gut feeling. Okay? And what, how's that gut feeling come? <clears throat> And so, in this sense, if you're familiar, he's, well, it doesn't matter. If you're familiar with the discussion, then you already know where he stands. I don't need to tell you. But, uh, but he would say these gut feelings are kind of pre-wired, organized for experience. They're not like this innate, hardwired, um, not only universal, but immutable, unchangeable. He's saying, no, 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 there's this genetic predisposition to go one way or the other depending on what culture you grow up in. So you have this kind of evolutionary uh, development inside this genetic predisposition. And so basically he goes through a lot of fascinating uh, tests. I don't have time to go through them, but if you want to look at the first part of his book, lots of fascinating stories, and it will shock you um, at how people actually function. And so um, he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to just look at how morality is thought, but how it actually functions. 
don't tell me what you say you believe or what you think is moral. I want to see how you act. Yeah. Can I just uh, clarify? So people will respond according to, you said, their culture, the, the culture they're raised in. But are you also saying that they'll respond according to conservative versus liberal brains that they think? Yes. So what I'm saying is that I'm not saying that the brain is uh, genetically hardwired to be left or right. I'm saying the brain is genetically predisposed to be moved in a direction. And so he talks about morality, um, the intuition, this gut response, is like an elephant. Reason is the little rider on top. The rider has some ability, hey, elephant, let's go this way. But usually when an elephant wants to lean left, the rider has to start adjusting. And so he's saying reason usually follows the gut reaction. And the, the reason can help. The rider can sometimes direct the elephant, but the elephant is much stronger than the rider. So in us, he's saying moral intuitions are much stronger. So he's just saying that there's a predisposition. Uh, and so I'm jumping a little ahead with culture, but so he's saying there's a genetic predisposition, and then I'll talk about the culture, okay. cultural influence. So the first thing he wants to say is that we're, we're, we're driven by gut feeling, moral gut feeling, which he would call moral intuitions, evolved intuitions. So some of the tests, <clears throat> he had uh, he had this... It's like a lot of people who studied under him would come and he had a test where there was a garbage can. The guy emptied it and then put a fresh, clean one. It was all nice. And then he sprayed a fart spray in there. <laughs> Don't know why, but make it consistent, I guess. Um, and people who would come up and he, and he would stand there and say, would you please take a survey? And people would walk up and <laughs> they're trying to fill out a survey with fart smell in the air. And he was saying that they would always have more moral disgust with the questions that they had to answer. <laughs> I have moral disgust when I smell fart. <laughs> you know, even it's myself. It's, who am I? <laughs> or if someone washes their hands, they say they tend to, um, if someone's asked to wash their hands before a test, doing a moral survey, they tend to ask, answer more conservatively. I mean, these are thousands of tests, thousands of people. Okay. So he's saying that, uh, that we have a tendency that our body is led and our gut is led much more than we like to think because we have this notion that we reason ourselves to be moral and then we act out of those reasons. But more often than not, we act out of our moral intuitions. Okay. <clears throat> and then reason comes behind and wants to confirm what we believe. Uh, I, I don't have time, but I'm going to do it anyway. But there is a test that he, um, he wants to show for confirmation bias. And so he says, okay, there's a triplet of numbers. Two, four, six. And you need to uh, replicate that by giving a triplet. And the experimenter will tell you if it follows the same rule as two, four, six. So a lot of people say 20, 22, 24. And the experimenter says yes. And, uh, and so they, they try to guess the rule. And they say incremental um, even numbers by two. And the experimenter says no. So they try again. They're like three, five, seven. Yes. Increments of two. No. And, uh, and they keep going. But what they never do is to give an example that is actually against their notion of what's right. So they, they think it's right, but it's hard for them to go to give an example of what they think is wrong. So if they said, 
two, four, three, the experimenter would say no. But if they said two, four, five, the experimenter would say yes. Because it's just any increasing number. And so he wants to say that we have a confirmation bias. We have this intuition, this, this gut response, and then we want to confirm our bias. And so we go to Google when we feel moral disgust at something we read, and we're going to go on Google and find out all the reasons why you're wrong. Okay? Or we read someone else's book, maybe me reading Jonathan Haidt, and I want to mine it and, and show you how wrong he is, that kind of thing, and not really read his argument. So he wants to talk about how we have this moral intuition, <clears throat> how the elephants move us. The second thing he wants to say, and this gets into the more of the cultural development, this environment, is that he says that we care more, uh, that morality is, is not dependent on reason, but often relationship or reputation. So, for instance, he did uh, a study of babies, pre-articulate babies, and uh, maybe Azel's age, or just a little bit older, and they would show a picture of, of this puppet trying to climb up a mountain, and then there would be a puppet that would push down the, the one right when it was getting to the top. And then they would set out these dolls for the children to play with, and they would stay away from the one that pushed. Okay? Even though they haven't learned right or wrong, haven't been able to reason. I mean, early, early on, even if they're single, even if they're just like only kids. And so there's a moral intuition that's there, but it's pre-articulate, pre-rational. Okay? They're not studying Plato's forms. <laughs> you also have, he says, psychopaths are really, really great at reasoning. They're really, really bad at empathy. Mm -hmm. And they usually are very immoral. And so you just, his whole argument is trying to say that reason is not why we are moral. Mm -hmm. It's usually something more guttural, but he's also saying that it's something that we are conditioned in. So I might have this predisposition toward things, but if I grow up in India, I might hold certain beliefs to be different than others. And so, uh, let's see. Oh, yeah. So he, um, he talks about, well, I don't need to tell you about that. <laughs> Interesting. But he does say that our reason is often our press secretary. Our moral intuition is like the president coming out with a policy. And it doesn't matter, the press secretary, if they agree with the policy or not, they're going to defend it. And they're not going to just convince themselves, they're going to convince everyone else that what they've done is right. And maybe you've said, oh, I can't believe that you left so-and-so. Oh, well. And then they start defending themselves. Or he says that he's found out that he's a chronic liar while he was writing this book. That he was writing this book and his wife said, why didn't you clean up your dishes after you were done? He's like, oh, I had to take the dog and, and the kid was screaming and all these things. And he says they were all true. But then he realized in his mind, actually, that's not why he didn't do it. Because those things were all very separate events. But he told the story as if it was all one event and he was like the victim. And so he says that now I realize that I was so good at lying, my wife believed me and I even believed myself. And so he says reasons are often post hoc fabrications of moral intuition. <clears throat> so, so this was his first part. And what he's doing is making a case that's saying that morality is that we have this genetic predisposition, but experience will shape us in one way or the other. And the metaphor, the elephant's rider one is the main one. But he also talks about we need to understand this as like a first draft. 
like the first draft of something that we write. Well, that's kind of like written down and that's kind of the template that we're working from and then we have to rearrange it by the more we think. And so reason starts kind of shaping it, environment starts reshaping it. So our, our genetic predisposition is the first draft and then all those experiences are editing that first draft. So he sees that the human is genetically predisposed but also has this nature that is engaging with the environment. He's not that the person is not just determined, that there is some agency there in relation to the environment. Okay, so that's his first case. And so he moves to the second one where the first one was moral intuitions, kind of over moral reasoning. The second is uh, moral foundations, what he calls moral foundation theory. So he really wants to push against transcendent principles. He's not into transcendence. He, he, he's not into the sacred texts of any religion. But he also thinks that there's a mistake by someone like Plato or Kant or um, Bentham, utilitarianism, where it's more, he says that it's more unfeeling and it's very systematic. And, and it's, try, it's a non-emotional approach toward morality. And he goes, that's what transcendence does. It doesn't, it doesn't really meet us where we're at. So he doesn't want to take principles, and he also realized that you take Kant or Bentham, that they would have this idea of, okay, what is the right thing to do? He said what that ended up doing is that when you translate it to a place like India, you start realizing that, oh, our culture is better than their culture. Because, but he says, actually, that's weird. And weird, he, he, uh, he uses that word in all caps. Western, educated, uh, industrialized, rich, and democratic. And so he says that when he went to India, he was surprised because he thought, oh, I'm on the moral high ground because we, like we don't like people to suffer and all these things. But he goes to India and sees that women stay in the kitchen, they can't eat with the men, and all these types of things, and he was morally indignant. And he goes, if he was a tourist, then he would not have noticed, but he was there to study morality. And realized that they actually had very strong social communities. They had strong families. They didn't divorce often. Uh, and they, they had a, long, a lot of support of one another. He was like, wow, they're very strong morally. They have strong moral communities. What is behind this? And so he started studying. <clears throat> so instead of having these kind of uh, transcendent principles, these kind of individualistic ethics that we often depend our Western culture on, he said, okay, I'm not going to tran uh, transfer these principles. I'm just going to observe. And I'm just going to study and see if I can kind of find out what kind of categories these moral intuitions come from. Where do we feel disgust? Where do we feel compassion? And he just wanted to study all these different cultures, individualistic cultures and sociocentric cultures, he would call them, uh, cultures that had strong moral communities. And then in the West, we had a strong sense of injustice, but not strong families, not strong communities, much more individualistic. And so he just wanted to observe rather than prescribe. And so his whole moral foundations theory is really just trying to figure out what foundations are there. <clears throat> and so uh, he wants to, he finds that there's six. He started out with five and then he added six. And so I think that he would be happy to add more, but he's been doing this for a while and he hasn't changed this. The book was written in 2012 and he's still on six, okay? Uh, that would be care and fairness and liberty that that tends to be more individualistic 
and you have uh, loyalty, authority, and sanctity. You, loyalty, authority, and sanctity. Sanctity. And so uh, these have developed out of this. So he had to discover what was the genetic predisposition toward how these arose, and then how did the environment change them. So just for example, care was, um, was developed from mothers taking care of babies. We don't want to see something harmed. And so this is kind of all around us that we see such vulnerability. And so we develop a sense. Uh, we're just predisposed, and then we develop a sense that we need to care for, um, and not harm. Uh, you would also have fairness. You know, you want to cooperate, but without being exploited. Especially if you're two working together and he makes all the money and you make nothing. You'd be like, unfair. Okay. Uh, and then liberty. Uh, someone who's oppressed. Someone who doesn't. And uh, uh, yeah, you can think of ideas. You can, you can understand where he's looking for examples of this. Uh, authority. He saw that... Um, uh, that communities that are very individualistic doesn't, are not as strong to survive if there's not a leader. But if there's a leader, then it, it moves us toward this moral presupposition that authority matters. Uh, and then uh, you have loyalty. You don't want a betrayer. You don't want someone betraying you. So you get those people out. And then the last one is sanctity. And he says those often come through smell. Uh, he says that, that in India... They, um, they would do things that you consider harmful or not fair. They're strong social hierarchies, but you don't dare wear your shoes into the house. You make sure you wash your hands because there's cows and there's uh, sacred cows walking along and you're stepping in other uh, uh, gross stuff, okay? And so it's important to be clean. And so he goes, this is, and also um, as communities, they wanted to protect themselves from parasites and disease. And so this is where he thinks that sanctity comes from, this kind of an ethics of divinity. So you would have care, liberty, and fairness as real ethics of individuality, where you would have authority and loyalty as ethics of community, and then you would have sanctity as ethics of divinity. And he would say that, um, that if you're liberal, libertarian, conservative, or different religions, you hold these in different force. And so... <clears throat> Um, and so he talks about this. The metaphor for the first one was a rider on an elephant. This one he says it's like a tongue that has six tastes, six taste receptors. And so everyone around the world has the taste receptor for sugar. But if you eat Mexican candy or uh, what has turmeric or you go to um, Korea and have red bean paste in something. Is that right? Okay. Let's just say yes. And, <laughs> but it's not very sweet. You know, I worked at a Korean convenience store, and it's just, uh, she's like, oh, gave me a sweet cake, and it wasn't sweet at all. I was like, this is bread. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, but then they're disgusted by corn syrup, you know, corn syrup in my cereal before I even pour the milk. What is this? And so we would have sugary receptors on our tongue, but everyone expresses them differently in different cultures, and we end up tasting things differently. He's saying the same as with morality. So we have these moral foundations, these kind of taste receptors, care, fairness, loyalty, etc. Um, but it's on, on the base of this kind of genetic predisposition. And we all develop them through whatever environment we have. And he says that there, there's multiple ways of interpreting. Or he says that 
there's not an infinite amount of ways, but there's multiple ways of, of, of reassigning the six and which priority you put them. And how you prioritize them, what balance you give them, shapes the different ones. So, for example, fairness for the liberal who emphasizes care, that's their primary, he says that's their sacred motto, don't harm anyone. Um, and that's why he had those early examples. If there was no harm, then it couldn't be immoral. And people struggled with their disgust, but they had to say it's not immoral because harm or care and harm is their primary motivation. Uh, but they see fairness as equality of outcome, that it, it has to, everyone has to have the same role. Where with the conservative, um, it would be more, fairness would be equality of opportunity. So maybe not everyone makes all the same amount of money, but the one who worked hardest and has, you know, if everyone has this equal base to start from, then that is actually the most caring thing to do. And that's fair, proportionality um, or equality of opportunity. And so the conservative has a sense of fairness, but it's very different from the liberal sense of fairness. So even within the same culture, maybe you're raised with a religious family and you start believing in proportionality over equality of outcome or something like that. And so he talks about how these, these may differ, but, we're, but the important part for him is trying to explain why we've become so righteously indignant toward one another, but actually we're working on the same foundation. We're working on the same foundation, people. We have a, a common evolutionary heritage. And in fact, he says, surprisingly, that conservatives had the advantage. He says conservatives are, have, more, have um, more advantage than the liberals. Because the liberals, um, the, and when he means liberal, he doesn't mean kind of like the classic liberal or what it is in England, but more progressivist, like a progressivist um, person, would, would put so much weight on care. And when they do the test, is actually, they score very, very low to almost nothing on loyalty authority sanctity but um and so there's a hyper there's more of an individualism among progressivists but in the conservative this they actually score high on sanctity authority and loyalty but they also score quite well with care and fairness and liberty free markets and whatnot and so and then he has a category for libertarians but i don't you don't have three sides of your brain, so I left them out. <laughs> they wanted to be free from this anyway. <clears throat> but the idea is that he says conservatives are actually much more balanced, and, they, and he did tests. And he did tests, and he said, okay, uh, check the box if you're very conservative, conservative, uh, liberal, or very conservative. And he said that people had to fill out, can you fill out these, state these moral statements as, if a t as a typical conservative? Like if you check the box very liberal, then you say, okay, can you fill this out as a typical conservative? Mm -hmm. And liberals, uh, the ones that scored very liberal, uh, the ones that identify as very liberal, scored the lowest in understanding conservatives. Mm -hmm. And the conservatives scored quite well in understanding liberal progressivists, interestingly. Mm -hmm. uh, and <clears throat> he said that even he himself thought, how could anyone be Republican and a good person? Mm -hmm. They must have had a bad childhood, moralistic, religious, um, because they hate immigrants, they hate poor people. Uh, how could they even think? Um, and so it was when he started doing these tests that he started realizing in himself that he realized, oh, actually, people who are conservative actually have a different sense of care. You know, uh, so someone's like, how can you go against Bernie? Because he wants to help people, right? And you might, you know, and he wants to give them a hand up. But they would say, no, actually, if you give them a handout, 
it's not helping them. You have to let them, you know, cut the ties from the government um, system. You have to let them develop. And so we, and we have moral discussions like this at Libri, what's, what's right, you know. But he would say that the conservatives just happen to see care and fairness differently, but they still see it as important. And so that was a big move for him. And so he saw that those who held sanctity, loyalty, and authority actually had strong communities. And he said that communities, this is my last point before I go into the third part, is he said that secular communities, and I can't remember what time period, but he said there was a, 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 an upsurge of all these communes. And some were secular communities and some were religious communities. And religious communities survived longer than secular communities because they had a stronger moral sense of um, needing each other, uh, dependence on each other, loyalty. And the other one was more about free expression to be with one another because they want, like, think, think a hippie commune. And free love, you know. But then, but then uh, he says those dissolved much more quickly than the religious ones. They held together. And so sanctity, authority, and loyalty holds communities together. So this moves him to his third part. So I talked about morality as intuitive. The second one was moral foundations, the basic of these six. But he says, okay, what makes solid community? How can we think of making more moral communities and how can we be held together away from this divisiveness that we have? How can we regain civil discussion? Uh, Let's see. Yes. So typically when you're talking about evolution and the development of morality, the discussion tends to be about natural selection of the individual. It's individual competition. So Dawkins called it the selfish gene. So whenever you're trying to figure out how we are moral, why are we kind to one another, and what, all these kind of things, it's usually trying to think of what survival mechanism was needed. How did this, de- um, how did this survival mechanism develop the, the need to be like this in relationships and in the environment? Well, <clears throat> he is saying that some morals cannot be explained by natural selection of the individual or individual competition. Take altruism, for instance, helping others, you know, uh, without benefit. And it was very difficult for people to, to talk about individual competition and saying, actually, it's just selfishness, guised, because I'm going to help you so that you can help me, and these kind of ex- explanations. But he was dissatisfied with that. He said, actually, I believe that it, altruism is better explained by evolution of groups, group selection. Mm-hmm. Not competition between individuals, but competition between groups. Mm-hmm. He says that usually when we talk about evolution and morality, we're talking about what happens within groups. He goes, I'm talking about what happens between groups. And how <clears throat> he goes, because it was, it was monumental for him, because he was reading about uh, this lecture guy was lecturing, and he says that what you never see uh, are two chimps carrying a log together. T- two chimps carrying a log, helping each other build something. He goes, that is, that is, chimps don't do that. And they might have a common kill, but they're both trying to get what they want out of it. Mm. There's not a shared intention. There's not, a, there's not a mutual interest. There's not, you're not going to go over to your chimp buddy's house to help him build something uh, because, because the chimp nature is wanting to be selfish. Okay. <clears throat> and, uh, and so he would say that uh, we're not 100% chimp. 
were actually 10% B. Because bees are those who suppress their individuality in order to help the hive. And in groups, uh, so bees didn't develop individually. They, they're understood better as groups because they're so in, in intertwined and interdependent. And so he's, he thinks that we're 10% bee. He doesn't say we're 100% bee. 90% chimp. We're mostly selfish, but 10% bee. So he calls it a hive overlay. And so we have this little hivishness to us. And so we have a lot of selfishness, but we have this group need, and that's developed some of the best parts has given us coherence and relationship, that we can all be in this room and not, you know, like fight and scratch and throw poop at each other, right? Like chimps would. Or, or anyway, you may not like that. <laughs> Work with it. So he would say that humans have... Uh, something called mirror neurons, that they're able to, and I don't know science, I'm not a scientist. If you are, you can help me out later on this, but due to time, just hold it on, hold off. But, but you can see that if I see someone doing something, then I can imitate that. That's how my children learn how to do things often. But it also means that if I see uh, Brett prick his finger, then I'm going to go, ooh, because I'm, I'm feeling it. It's because there's something in my brain that has, is called a mirror neuron that allows me to empathize, to know how that feels. Um, a chimp is not going to watch you know, TV and be horrified. It's just going to be nonsense, okay? Or maybe if they see someone, or mother lizards just leave their babies to die, and you're like, you're so cruel, right? Because humans don't do that, because humans have mirror neurons. They also have something called, mothers will develop something called oxytocin, tocin. Nurses, help me out there. But, uh, but what it does is it bonds the mother to the baby. And it, and it bonds the mother to the baby in such a way that it's like, this is my baby. And I want to protect them and hold them. But he said that what it does is that it creates an, uh, a love within the bond, but it doesn't create a hate. So there might be group competition going on, but these, these certain things have created us to have empathy, but also a love within the group. So if a mother loves their baby, they might think their baby is the most beautiful thing in the world, but it doesn't mean they hate your baby. It's not like they're going to hurt your baby and so that their baby has more of the pie. <coughs> they love, they have a special bond, but they also have a love outside. And so he's saying this is how maybe morality is developed by group selection or group competition. And this is how we can think of altruism. <clears throat> and so he believes that... Uh, not only the individual is predisposed and then is influenced by their environment, but that the genes and the culture co-evolve as groups. That, uh, that he, because evolution tends to say, how were we developed? How do we get arms and legs and these kinds of, the ability to see? And it's kind of an explanation of morphology. But he wants to continue and say, actually, evolution includes anthropology. And so evolution is that we have developed a moral sense. It didn't stop 50,000 years ago. It's still going on today. And so how we develop our societies is actually influencing our genetics. And he talks about how this Russian, I was telling someone, I think I was telling you last week, but there was uh, a Russian scientist that basically bred the tamest foxes together and did it for 30 generations. 
And by the end, they were so domesticated that foxes could be pets. They had shorter teeth. They, uh, they got less reactive. And so genetically, they were changed by, their, by, um, by how they were being bred together and how they were shaped. And so just imagine if I'm like, oh, I'm just going to be around nice people and start breeding with nice people. Then our family becomes really nice. Uh, that didn't happen, but... <coughs> next town over shows up and they have clubs and all of a sudden you don't <laughs> that's right you don't exist anymore good point but the thing is is he would say that actually those religious communities lasted much longer because if you're carrying a club to beat the other ones up because that's tougher well you're also going to turn it on one another but religious com communities would stand up for each other they would give their lives for each other because they would suppress their individuality for the sake of the community <coughs> So he says that as we evolved as groups, we actually, uh, moral communities were developed by religion and politics. And so religious community, um, uh, this co-evolution led to um, a development of seeing something that's outside of ourselves. We're able to suppress our individuality in order to honor the group. Uh, he thinks that there was this, I can't remember, hypersensitive something module. But basically, you know when you look at clouds or look at trees, like even my daughter this night looking in the couch, and she's like, oh, do you see the mermaid? You know, and we can see, we can see bodies or faces in the sky, and we can see images. Well, uh, some people explain that we started seeing images everywhere, and we started creating a sense of divinity around us. And, that we just, and so we started believing the guy in the sky because we started projecting um, from this hypersensitive sensor. And he says that what happened is that people started using this in order to create a bond of something transcendent. What held us together? Something beyond us. Um, the Pax Romana or, or the God of Israel, something like that. And so there was a sense of this is what holds us together. And I can submit myself as an individual to the group. Um, but what holds us as a group is not just our survival, but our honor of the thing that holds us together, our God. And so this is pushing against the new atheist that said religion is more like a bug, a disease, a virus. And the reason that religion replicates is because it's like a cold. And when someone coughs, um, another person coughs, and the, and, the, and the cold moves around and keeps going. And so the new atheist would say religion is like a virus. And it's just because someone sneezes and you feel religious doesn't mean that it's a good thing. You're sick. But Hyde... He's positive. He goes, but the problem is, is that the new atheist has these communities that are much more bent around individualism and they don't hold together. Religion has offered us strong moral community. And so there's something that we can submit our individuality. It's not disappearing. We're still part chimp. But it's enabled us to have strong moral communities because we see something beyond ourselves. And this has also happened in the realms of politics. And so he always says, you need to look at what someone holds as sacred. Uh, so liberals hold care as sacred. Libertarians hold liberty as sacred. Uh, always look, and he goes, follow the sacredness. And to see where they, where they land on these moral foundations. And this is what will bind them together. This is what, and he says, morality binds them together. But he says morality also blinds them. Morality binds and blinds. 
uh, I mean, this is the fear that people, that uh, the people with natural individualistic selection, not individual, natural selection of the individual, competition between individuals. This was their fear of group selection. This is why it went out of favor with Darwin. It's because it just leads to social Darwinism. Our group is better than your group. We need to remove the Jewish people from Germany. And uh, I'm not saying that Hitler was a social Darwinist. Maybe he was, but that's an example of this idea of a group being against another group. Okay? And so uh, it can lead to fascism. Our group is best, and we must annihilate other groups, and you are all bees. But that's why he wants to preserve the chip part of us. Okay? And so Haidt wants to press against this and say we're not 100% bees. And um, so you don't want to help a bee to hurt the hive, but you don't want to protect the hive and hurt the bees. You need to have this balance. And so he tries to develop an ethical system um, based on this common bond of moral foundations. How can we hold together? And so at the very end of the book, he gives this, uh, he gives examples of how liberals can understand um, this is what they care about, this is what libertarians care about, and this is what conservatives care about. I won't go into it, but basically his, his last statement is people need to start sharing space together because we are so shaped by intuition and gut rather than just reasons. We just need to live in the same space. If we share the same space, we will start allowing one another their differences and we'll start being able to work together. So he even says that, the, that politicians started living in their own counties rather than flying to Washington, D.C., and he thinks that politicians need to live in the same neighborhood. He wants them to move to Washington, D.C., where conservatives and liberals will all live together because then they have to share community together. Otherwise, they just... Their constituency? What's that? And then stay out of touch with their constituency? Well, there you go. <laughs> Hyde has, I guess, that issue. But it might be the best for their constituency if they start working together. Because right now our polarization is not helping any constituency. And then also listen to one another. And that's where he ends. <clears throat> so how might the Christian respond? How might we respond? You're doing really well. Okay. <clears throat> First, I want to say that I'm very thankful for uh, Jonathan Haidt and how he's kind of extended this olive branch. In uh, that he desires what I desire, civility. I don't see enough civil conversation happening with one another and how we can't sit at the same table and have a discussion. Uh, we just look at our news feed. So, so I long to, to with, with Jonathan Haidt to work toward a civil society and talk about things important. And I'm so glad that he took the first step. He said that at the very beginning, he goes... Um, the thing that we need to learn about our righteous minds is that we're all righteous self, um, self-righteous hypocrites. Yes. <laughs> and so he looks at Jesus and said, um, he said, take the log out of your own eye before you take out the speck of the other. He goes, so I need to take the log out of my own eye. And that's the kind of basis for his book. Wonderful that he's, he's looking to Jesus as a way of understanding how he might be in relationship with conservatives and religious people, which uh, many of you probably account yourself. And then also, I really, um, I'm amazed that he's not seeing morality as just some kind of uh, selfish, like uh, a selfish motivation that's just covered in the guise of virtue. But he actually believes that morality is what binds us together. It can blind us, 
but it's what holds us together and he's longing for moral communities to be solid. He doesn't want that just to be for his own group, but he wants it for society. How might we build stronger communities together? And so I really, I really am very thankful for him about that. <clears throat> and then lastly, um, I really uh, see the benefit of what it means to be in community together. We see here, I mean, I think one of the beauties of Labrie is that we call people of different beliefs, different convictions come in, and they can say what they believe, and then we're going to point out and say, but this is how you act, or something like that. And this is what we welcome people to come in, come into our home and see how we act. Do we act consistently with what we say? We don't want to be self-righteous hypocrites. We want to share life, and we want other people to share life with us, and so that we might see the commonality um, among us. Um, but the question I have <clears throat> is that I feel that Heights hope has something left to desire. Um, of course, I would say this as a Christian. <laughs> but I think that is a fundamental flaw in his thought. And the fundamental flaw is that he has great dis-ease with an impersonal universe. He, had di he has great dis-ease with a non-purposeful universe. And so this is his fundamental position, as far as I understand, because he says he doesn't believe in transcendence. Um, but he calls natural selection a designer. Natural selection is design. He does this several times. He always does it in quotations and even qualifies himself. He goes, I don't believe it in to be intelligent design, but it is a metaphorical way of us working it through. And then he talks about humans having higher natures. He obviously puts it into quotations too. Not, and he puts it in quotations not because there's a real higher nature, but, but, um, uh, but I believe that it, what this does is it, it doesn't, he's trying to relieve the tension of the impersonal and the non-purposeful. Now, I think that what he's does, he's, he's, he's cheating the system. Francis Schaeffer calls it semantic mysticism. <coughs> it includes a word yeah, right. and actually makes you see the thing and you start believing the thing without actually allowing it to work itself out. And so if you say natural selection has design, then you say that it has intention, hmm. that it has purpose, and that it even has uh, intentionality, which implies person. And so I, I, I'm saying, okay, I want him to be consistent. Okay, he says there's no nothing transcendent, yet he cannot escape the tension or the claustro. I call it existential claustrophobia, <laughs> that he can't he can't stand that it's a closed system, mm -hmm. and so every time he mentions natural selection, um, he has to speak of design. Uh, now, maybe I could look over this, but I believe that his whole argument hinges on this. That morality is relational. That morality needs something that holds us together. And so he may not point to care as sacred or fairness, but he points to evolution, to a non-personal evolution, but he puts design to it. Okay, And so it's something that enables um, him to say, well, evolution has an intention. And then that's something that we need uh, to abide in. <clears throat> but the question is, is, what makes evolution morally obligatory? What makes it morally obligatory? We might go extinct, okay? We don't listen, we might go extinct. But 
what reason is there to believe that there should be biological continuity of the human race? Okay. Uh, the idea there is that perhaps humanity is simply a virus, like the world caught a cold. And some people see it that way. And they see that being human is a virus, and it causes people to despair. I've seen people pass through here and are in despair at being human. But that is not, the, that is not um, I, I think he's trying to escape that. He's trying to escape the despair, and so he wants to make it personal. That he's not, uh, he doesn't want to be a ghost in the machine. But what else can you be? Mm -hmm. I believe that the Bible, um, he says that whenever something is made sacred, like a sacred text, it makes it irrational. No, and people are no longer able to talk about it. But that's not how I see. Uh, that has not been my experience. There's lots of discussion I have around the sacred text called the Bible. Uh, and it informs my discussion, but it also informs me to be open to discussion. And so I want to say that I think that what the Bible proposes actually fulfills Height's longings. It it hopes for a morality that holds us together. He hopes for the personal. He hopes for morality to be this kind of uh, held together by relational righteousness. But you have to start with where the Bible begins. And if you begin where the Bible is, then it, it fleshes out a lot of what he's hoping for. So the first thing, the Bible expresses that God is personal. Um... <clears throat> The Christian does not need to put quotations around higher nature, does not need to put quotations around design, uh, because it's very consistent. Because God is personal, then we can understand that being a person in the universe is not an aberration. It's not happenstance. It's, it's meaningful. And so to be a person in the universe makes sense if the Creator is also personal. <clears throat> it makes sense of my agency in the world. Where, do I, where can I look to understand my agency in the world? Can I look, can I look to chimps? No, there's something that even Hyde <coughs> would say that chimps cross the Rubicon, this kind of, this, this great shift that just happened where groups were formed and religion came. <clears throat> and so if you believe that God is personal, and makes us in his image, as the Bible attests, then it's consistent with how we experience reality. It also means that reality is fundamentally re relational. That not only am I a person and we're bumping up against each other as atoms, personal atoms, but actually we're in relationship. And so if there's a creator over creation, then by default, as soon as anything is made that has personhood, it's automatically in relationship with the creator. And then it makes sense of being in relationship with others. And so <clears throat> this is where I think that height would be served by seeing God as personal. <clears throat> and also uh, even this hope that people have when they look at these relationships to say what holds us all together and then to look for something transcendent like he even says follow the sacred and i say that when you're following the sacred well to believe that there is a god 
makes room to say, <clears throat> well, there is a reason that you long for transcendence and that transcendence to not just be a void. You long for that transcendence to have a name, to have a voice, to know you. And this is what the Bible attests. Also, uh, the Bible attests to purpose, not just to person, but also to purpose. That morality is design. That our design is for morality. It's not something that we just concoct in order to understand the algorithm of cause and effect. It's actually morality then makes sense as relationship. So this is how Height sees morality, is what binds us. How might we relate to one another? What holds us together? And so morality is seen as relational <clears throat> and purposeful. This is the purpose of relationship. And this is precisely what the Bible says. The Bible says that God, the, that it's his moral character, not only his personal, but it's his moral character that holds relationships together. It's when we move away from his moral character that relationships suffer. And so this is why we, uh, Jesus gives us the two great commands, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And to love, and the second is like the first, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so the fundamental reality is relational and moral. That the purpose is not just to be persons, to do what we will, but to be in moral relationship with one another, to be in righteous, to have righteous minds, but in, uh, not in self-righteousness, but in love for one another. <clears throat> and so when you don't have this personal relationship with, uh, if you don't have a sense of God as personal, then it leaves me to ask, what are you left with in trying to work out an ethical system? And I feel that Height feels this pinch. Mm -hmm. He's trying really hard, but what he's saying is that we just need to listen to each other, we need to live together, and I agree with all those. But he finds the tension between these two systems of uh, individualism and groupishness. But it might be better to say is, he calls it enemy, after a guy named Emile Durkheim, so kind of lawless individualism, an individual gets to do what they want, the selfish gene. And then there's the hive, totalitarianism. And it's this constant tension between those who want uh, the hive to rule, the others who want the chimp to rule. And there's this tension between the two. And he he's trying to find a bond that holds them together. And it's very difficult for him to resolve. And I believe that, um, that the Bible gives us the, the ability to think, how can we be diverse and yet unified? Mm -hmm. And so this is the metaphor that I'm going to end on, that the Bible gives us. I've given you several metaphors from a height, the rider on the elephant. Um, you have the, the chimp and the bee. And then you have the tongue with the six taste receptors. Well, the Bible gives us a wonderful metaphor for this relationship that's held together, and it's called the members of one body. You're many members, but one body. So there's individuality and yet groupishness. And that they're held together by righteous relationship. So how does this work out? Well, first, uh, I want to talk about there's a great leveler. That, and this is particularly the Christian needs to hear. Um, because sometimes the Christian can be about their group and not about the other. But the great leveler is that every single person is made in the image of God. That means every person, gay or straight, disabled or not, um, 
man, woman, slave, master. They all have, masters have dignity too. But each person has inherent dignity. No matter who they are, no matter what has been done, they still have, they bear the image of God. And so whenever someone walks through that door, some people are easy. Some people are very difficult. But they all bear the print of the image of God and we receive them as such. The second leveler is that all have fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one who stands in privileged place before God. No one can say, I'm more moral than that person, therefore God should love me more. This kind of idea. So all have fallen short. None can say that they are righteous. And third great leveler is that Jesus welcomes any who would come. He doesn't deny any who would come to him. And so these are these great levelers for this kind of universal, think of universal humanity where every individual is important. And this is something that Western liberalism has hung on to tenaciously in the inherent dignity of the human being without the metaphysic, without the meta narrative. <clears throat> and so the Christian says, I believe that you have dignity because God has made you and I will treat you as such. And Christians need to hear that. And so Paul said um, <clears throat> in Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, um, male nor female, for you are all one. So you have this sense, <clears throat> there's more to that passage in a second, hold on, but there is this sense that we all stand equally before one another. But this does not lead us to a relativism. It doesn't mean that we just come in and live as we wish, because we're incorporated in to the moral character of God in Christ. And so he says that you are neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You are children of God through faith in Christ Jesus, for all of you were baptized into Christ who have clothed yourselves with Christ. And so the moral character that holds us together is not our morals. It's not about a moral uh, choice of how our group, but our group is um, it's not what we define as sacred, but it's the righteousness of Christ that holds us together. It's not our righteousness, but it is Christ's righteousness. It's his character that shapes us into right relationship. This is what Christ's, um, Christ's body is supposed to look like. We're supposed to have, we're supposed to each have our um, own place within the body in our individuality, but we also relate to the other. And so <clears throat> it's in Christ that we are considered free. Um, it's... Some people think of religion, like height, would say that it is totalitarianish. It suppresses the individuality. But actually, when one comes into Christ, I believe he's right if you define Christianity as religion, which is on ritual and merit. But on Christ, on Christ himself, he's the one that gives us his righteousness. It's not our righteousness, but as we relate to him, we move into that righteousness and become human. We become free. So Paul later in the same letter says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. But don't use your freedom for sinful indulgence, like selfish gene. But use your freedom to be slaves of love to one another. So it's this interesting notion that Christ sets us free to serve, just as he himself served. 
And so when we think about what does it mean to have moral character and these moral foundation, we look to Christ. And that's what shapes us. It's not our own righteousness, but his righteousness working in us and through us as we relate. This brings me to my very last point about this. Is that, well, is it only for the in-group? Christian love only for the in-group. You know, a lot of Christians, and we must sadly say, often act like this. They love their own community, but they don't want others to mess it up. Um, If a good small group is going on, they don't want to break it up. (laughs) They don't want you in. Um, Now, what... um, what Christ said in Matthew 25, when he talks about the final judgment, he says, whatever you did to the least of my brothers. Paul often talks about love one another. He's talking about the, the community of, within Christ. But what he's talking about is don't love the community and hate the others. He's saying it's kind of like the oxytocin. But Jesus is our kind of oxytocin, I guess you might say. If I can say that without sacrilege. But it's this idea that we can love those with us, a special bond, but we don't have to hate the babies around us. We don't have to hate the others around us. We still have love, and so, and so the Christian community is supposed to demonstrate that love toward one another so that it is a witness of what it looks like to be shaped by the moral character of God. But then that is supposed to flow out to the love of the stranger. So the call for hospitality again and again and again in the New Testament. And also Jesus says... Uh, love your enemy. God gives rain and sunshine to even the wicked. Therefore, love your enemy. Uh, don't love as the Gentiles do. So he's saying, don't love like, if you love like every other group, then what's distinct about us? If you are held in Christ, then you can love the stranger and love the enemy. And it becomes, it becomes a witness of what his moral character is being shaped in us, not just about loving ourselves or loving our church, but loving those outside of our circles. Um, that is, that's how Christ worked because that's how he welcomed you in. And so, I mean, this is what we try to do at Libri. We try our best. We fail, uh, particularly Liz. Um, <laughs> and especially me. And rarely Julia. But we, we do fail. But what we try to be very transparent about that mm-hmm. because we're not trying to point to ourselves. We're trying to point to the one who forgives us but also so shaping us. And so when we stand here, you're welcomed into God's hospitality, not simply ours. Uh, but Labrie really wants to bring people. We believe that you know, being religious and kind of conservative is that we still have the ability to welcome people in. It doesn't dis- discount civil discourse. And so I believe that the Bible offers us a way of looking at what Hype has to say, appreciate what he has to say, who's created this bridge for us to have this discussion, but to speak um, hopefully and authoritatively from it, um, from what the Bible has to give us. I believe that it fulfills those longings he has. This is time for discussion. So anyone have a question? Yes, Liz. Um. Yeah, I was just wondering about your response to how he says that our our minds are formed to have certain biases um, 
to, to liberal or conservative, um, whether you see that as, as being something that a Christian could hold to, and if, if that's true, if we do have kind of a natural bias, whether it's nature or nurture or whatever, do we, and do we just kind of throw up our hands and say, well, I'm made to be liberal, I'm made to be conservative, or do we try and, you know, push against that? Um, yeah, is, is it an inherent thing or not? That's good. Um, <clears throat> I, I can't, I don't have the scientific evidence, but uh, thinking as, uh, as a Christian who, who looks at what hype has to say, I think it's very possible. And I don't think that there's anything that's against um, how a Christian might see um, how human, hum, um, uh, human predispositions develop. I think that we, I mean, I look at my son. He has a predisposition toward music. Uh, my son, I have to believe, has been taught, nurtured in some ways, to um, to be maybe erratic, like his father. <laughs> but I think that there's probably some genetics there too, and it's just it's just an easy aim for him and me because we're in such close proximity. And the more he spends time with Julia, the, the more he'll be shaped toward Julia. His predisposition will be shaped. I mean, he was talking about how twins, how twins would be separated at birth. And, uh, and they would look later on, identical twins, and they would have, they were raised in different environments and they would both be conservative or both be liberal. You also have a brother and sister growing up in the same family, same environment, different genetics. And uh, um, because of their their predisposition and their experiences, would tend led one the the artistic girl to be more liberal, and the the kind of army guy to be more conservative. Uh, so, I think that that's entirely possible. I I don't think, but I don't think politics, our political disposition, is that ultimate identity marker. It's just something about us that we tend toward. But the Christian also has to hold that, well, that political view, um, one, is not ultimate. It's just secondary. And I have to submit my predispositions, my experience, to the Lordship of Christ. I have to look to say, okay, Jesus, I think that these things should happen, but how might I go about these things? And so I believe that a Democrat can be Christian and a Republican can be Christian. And they can function in the world through different kind of avenues, but still tend to the world because they can't be all things. Uh, they can't be Christ. They can only be a part of what Christ is calling them to be through their predisposition. And I also think that we can, and so I think that uh, our relationship to Christ, relationship to our community, can also further shape us in our political views. Um, so I don't think that there's a problem. Besides. Yeah, I guess it's, it's yeah, I think you must answer that, but yeah, it's the, when you're making claims of morality, like it's different than being predisposed to music, because you're not like, only music, no science, science is wrong and bad, it's like, it's like you can't necessarily hold two, two really different sets of morality, so. Yeah. Maybe not different sets of morality, but we can moralize lots of things that uh, artists can moralize the engineer like oh, engineers you know <laughs> what do they know you're sitting beside an engineer by the way uh, <laughs> she's an artist <laughs> don't I, fight <laughs> I didn't say it. <laughs> but I do think that we can have a moral disposition toward our tendencies mm -hmm. did you want to say something to that?
Um, I, I just, um, a couple comments. Um, having raised three kids, <coughs> one of them, I think, is wired to be more conservative. And he's actually fairly liberal, and he grew up with quite a liberal family, because we're, we're a liberal family, a fairly liberal family. But, um, but you can see him from a child separating his vegetables, eating one, then the other, and the other. And, you can, and he ended up a surgeon, so he could focus. You know, and it, it just highlight things, but he still be, was grew up in the, in the moral structure of someone of a, of a liberal family. So mm -hmm. that's one comment. I'm, I'm just looking at my own kids. The other two are born and are liberal, and then just they were different from childhood. Mm. Um, and the other comment I have is um, in the, a lot of what he re, re, refer, uh, referred to is it, in the States, um, more so than in Canada, um, conservative and religious are, are kind of in one, on one side, whereas in Canada we have uh, more of a Christian liberal um, leadership within uh, within the country so that mm -hmm. Christian and liberal are dumped together and you look at you know the medical system and the and the and the thing and the whole whole thing has a much more of the the liberal liberal conservatives the moralistic liberal conservatives yes. taking the lead so he maybe his structure if he was within Canada and his the, some of the questions he were asking would not would be a different format well this yeah exactly and he would agree with that yeah. Because he, he says that if you're in Europe, then he goes, I'm American, and I'm interpreting things through a U.S. lens, yeah. a U.S. political lens. And he wrote this in 2012, so pre-Trump, this is during Obama's own office. Mm -hmm. But he started seeing the political divide. But he said that you can take this moral foundation theory and take it to a different country, and it may look different because there's just a different... He goes, there's different permutations, different mixture of these things. It's like an alchemy. But they are all at work. So he's not. He's saying that if you go to Canada, you're not going to see six very different morals, but you're just going to see those those same morals at work in different ways, mm -hmm. where you might have a Christian and and uh, who's more left leaning. Yeah. So thank you for that, uh, Josh. One second. Um, yeah, I just want to say uh, I think you did an excellent job on your talk. Um, I'm a big fan of Jonathan Haidt, and mm. I, I like popular. Uh, social psychology as much as I can get. Um, speaking to the, the dog comment when I said it's impractical, um, the, uh, the worst meal I ever had was a rabbit named Rodney. Uh, <laughs> a, a, a family pet died by, um, what? killed by a dog. And my, si my stepsister, being a very practical person, went, well, I guess we're going to have him for dinner. <laughs> the so, rabbit. The rabbit. Mm. So, uh, so the, I, I was speaking to it from a practicality standpoint because I've already eaten a pet. Um, <laughs> the, um, I'm asking my moral intuitions what I think. <laughs> pleasure. Um, I, I, I want to, you, you, said, you said another thing, um, minor critique. Uh, when you talked about oxytocin, yes. uh, and then you said uh, uh, Jesus being our oxytocin, <laughs> right? Um, that could have been, yeah. Well, <laughs> I, uh, now I'm now I'm drawing not from Jonathan Haidt, but Robert Sapolsky, who wrote the Behave, which is a really good uh, book on these sorts of subjects. He noted that the hormones oxytocin and vasopressin, which are the primary um, hormones for the love of us, are also very much present on all of our xenophobic moments, mm. and so they are 
the, they, these are the hormones responsible not just for the love of us but for the hatred of them mm-hmm. and so um, so that would be a critique of height because I'm just I'm oh, just talking okay. about what he said yeah um, sure uh, but 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 it, it, it's not just a universal it, it's not a universal love hormone it's a parochial love hormone. he does say that is a parochial love hormone um, he said that it, it doesn't give you a love for humanity Yes. It gives you a love for someone specific. Yes. But he says that it doesn't increase your hatred of the other. It, it, I, I, yeah, but it doesn't increase your hatred, but, but it's also the same hormone present during the hatred. Hmm. So think of a mama bear. Oh, I see. It, so it may, not, it may not create xenophobia, but in xenophobic moments, oxytocin is present. Well, if, 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 I really, if I'm a mama bear and I really love my child... Yes. And now there's something threat. Now I, there's even a perception of a threat. I hate that thing. But that is in the moments of threat. But yeah, I see. Okay, yeah. yeah. Thank you. So yeah, that's yeah. Mm-hmm. That's and, and so that's sort of the mechanisms that, I, that I've been the, the, yeah. the vague mechanisms as I've been told them. But yeah, no, I, I find. So uh, then that that would mean that Jesus is not the oxytocin. <laughs> <laughs> so thank or, you for helping or, um, clarify. I mean. There, there, but I, I see, I see a very big correlation between American evangelicals and their and, and build the wall. Yeah. And so what's what's the thing that holds them together? Mm-hmm. Jesus. What's the thing that you know? And they're the same people that want to build the wall. Mm-hmm. So I, I do see it as yeah. Jesus is our oxytocin. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so okay. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's mm-hmm. you know, um, I mentioned it subtly. I didn't go up for yeah. it full blast. But I am very, I uh, lament the political evangelicalism that I see in the U.S. Uh, And I thought about this is that, you know, but, and so I decided not to make it vitriolic. I wanted to make it a little bit less so. But when I look at any kind of political Christianity or look at the Crusades, uh, you look at any kind of um, a myriad of ways that the church has done evil toward others um, in sexuality, in race, uh, in tribe, whatever, you, you can see that there's this hate that can occur from uh, those who claim Christ. But what you also see is that there is a consistent testimony throughout the Bible that God's people are often xenophobic, often doing disastrous things. And in fact, uh, you found through Height's test that Christians uh, a lot of times cheated just as much as um, one who wasn't a Christian, who lied just as much as a Christian. Now, as a Christian, I say, well, that's exactly right. I believe it, it breaks my heart. But I think that's right, because I believe in sin. I believe that we all fall short. But I also believe that those who claim Christ are not living consistently to what Jesus has called or even behaved. And so Paul is at pains, even in the early church communities, to say, stop looking after your own interests. Look to Christ. And so in Philippians 2, he talks about, uh, you know, he did not grasp equality that he took himself as a humble servant and even to death, death on a cross. And it's for this reason that we praise him above all of the names. And so he was pointing to Jesus as, as this is how we are to be shaped. Not by this in-clubness, 
because that's the mistake that the chosen people in in the Sinai desert did. They're like, oh, wow, we got a covenant. This is great. And Jesus is like, yeah, I, I constitute you as a people that has no land as this yet so that you might know to depend on me. And, to wel- and there were laws to welcome the foreigner in, that they were to receive the Sabbath. And so the Bible is very strong at the love of the other, love of the stranger, the love of the foreigner, the love of the enemy. And so the biblical testimony would not affirm that Jesus is the oxytocin in your set, right? But that, um, but that something else is at work, okay? They're, they're, they're not, uh, yeah. So I would say, yes, it laments me, breaks my heart that Christians can act in a deplorable way. But, uh, but we can see that that's consistent to the biblical witness. Mm-hmm. And we see that, uh, that it's not the moral character of God. Right. I was a little unclear about, or is, are you, is he claiming that there's an absolute morality, or is everything, you know, uh, cultural or situational? Or? Well, he, I don't know if he would use the word absolute, but he does say that, um, that natural selection has a design. That's as close as he gets to his grounding of an absolute. And so he would say that uh, we have a common evolutionary heritage that has brought this forth and that that natural selection has its own goal. And so uh, we are caught up in its goals. But, but it, don't different cultures have different evolutionary heritages? I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know the scientific evidence, but I know that from what I know, that they've moved away from different genetic groupings, but they see that that humanity finds itself in common ancestry, uh, that we share the genes, we share the gene pool. It's not that we, uh, we share the same gene pool. It's not that we are completely different genetic makeup. You can't, you can't find someone in Africa, Asia, and here and have an entirely new genetic makeup. There might be genetic differences uh, of mutations and adaptations, but... Uh, uh, and you might see differences between uh, 40,000 years ago and now, but you wouldn't see that there are two different humanities. There's one humanity under God. And so, uh, so yeah, he would say that, no, we all share the same genetic gene pool, and that we have um, been reshaped in small genetic adaptations, mutations and adaptations, through cultural environment. Mm-hmm. We have these predispositions, they, they vary a little bit, but culture emphasizes those variations. So it, he sees that they are innate, uh, but they're also mutable, that they can change and adapt. And what do you think as a Christian we should say about that? Well, I mean, the Bible affirms a common humanity. Uh, it, it affirms that all are united by the Creator, who's made humanity in his image. Um, and like I said, there's the great levelers. So however we are to think about evolutionary theory, we have to begin with the idea, um, with what the Bible affirms about every single human being and, and about humanity in general. Okay, but, but like you were saying, you know, like the, well, two things, you, said, like, you know, Christ commands to love. Yes. Okay. So now, and then you brought the abortion issue, for example. Yes. So n- now you can have somebody who's, if you like, pro-life, you know, 
having that being a very loving thing, and you have someone who's pro-choice and also sees that that comes from a loving heart. Yeah. So, so both and that would so in that case, both positions are moral. For height, absolutely. Um, and so that's where I fundamentally disagree, and that's where uh, that's why I said that he's much more of. I guess I didn't make it as explicit, and so thank you for asking the question. But it's not that we can just pick and choose what is our sacred. Because when we look at God, we have to look at His moral character, because it is His moral character that gives coherence to morality. Because uh, it is His character that shapes what morality means. Uh, so we don't just say, oh, that these are evolved, these are, um, these are observations of what evolved, and some emphasize this and some emphasize that which is what height does. And so he, he wants to, um, he, he's trying to be in a descriptive morality rather than a prescriptive morality. And I think that that is a major mistake. I mean, he's trying to do it so that he's not impinging his morality on someone else. But uh, I'm not trying to impinge my morality on his. I'm saying that there's one God, and, if, and that one God is personal and moral. And if that's the case, I have to submit under that morality whether I like it or not. But can't you have Same. somebody who's got a personal relationship with God Holding either one of those positions, yes. and, and think that this is this is what God would choose. So, does that make both both pro-choice and pro-life moral? From that perspective, no. Uh, is morality is no, it, is it no, a, it a societal thing or is it an individual thing? No, it would not. I'm not going to be able to resolve the abortion issue tonight. <laughs> but I will say that uh, just taking that as an example, that sometimes we have. Uh, we have important issues happening in, in kind of ethical conundrums. Uh, and we're trying to do our best to try to, to honor God with what we've received amongst these conundrums. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, the question of sanctity of life is when does, when does uh, a life exist? Okay. And what does the Bible affirm? So, so I would have to begin there. Uh, but also, I would want there to be agency, uh, because humans need agency. But I wouldn't want to, to pit agency versus sanctity, to say, well, they're both moral, so just pick which one you like. Um, I would say, no, I would have to submit myself. And so, let's say that someone comes to a conclusion. Like I said, I'm not going to resolve it tonight, because that would just totally veer us away. Mm. But let's just say that one made a choice to keep the baby at great difficulty and the, um, and the woman who takes, takes, uh, takes the fetus. Uh, and they do it before God. I think that God will evaluate that in his perfect justice in a way that we will not be able to evaluate mm -hmm. in the same way. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there will be accounting there. Uh, with whether you, because it says that um, you will be judged for all actions, whether good or bad. And so we'll still need to be weighed, no matter what choices we have. And sometimes we make choices in life where we're not sure. And we try to choose the best path. It's not that we that we're always know exactly what the right choice is. And sometimes we do something in the act of love, and then we realize that it wasn't actually an act of love. It was an act of self-interest or something like that. Well, would it be possible? I don't want to take up too much time. No, but would it be possible for you, you've got two people, and, and, and for one, it would be wrong, it would be immoral to, to, 
to make the pro-life choice and the other is just the opposite you know, I don't it's think because, that you, because it's, it's, they they both believe that this is the right and moral thing to do. It's probably abortion is just, probably not a good example. So just because one is making a choice and they feel moral about it doesn't mean that it is moral. Mm-hmm. I can choose something that I feel very moral that is a very moral choice, and it ends up not being a moral choice. But isn't ultimately God? It's our heart that God judges more more so than our, our actual actions. Both. I think he. Well, I think the he judges are, are, both. Are symptomatic of the, of the heart. They are symptomatic of the heart, but uh, but the heart is the most is is deceptive above all, right? Mm-hmm. And so God will judge the action and the motivation. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, it's not just because I have good intentions that God will will honor me for good intentions my whole life. That God will weigh everything in perfect justice in a way that we can't even imagine. Did you want to say something in relation to this, Carl? Me? I could. Oh, I thought someone. Oh, was it you, Elise? Oh, I thought someone raised their hand. Maybe you're just yawning. Did you want to say something in relation to it? To this. Okay. No, I okay, want to okay. say something in relation to something you said earlier. Okay. Okay. So okay. I'll let's go ahead. That. Let's go ahead. Okay. Um, Clark, you talked about. You know, you're really heartbroken or really distraught by the political evangelicalism in the United States. Yes. Um, I, I just. I said that. Yes. Yeah. Um, I I came tonight intrigued by the topic of um, the alt left and the the new left the, and the alt right. The new left right. and the alt right. Um, ways that I could, as a Christian, look lovingly at, at either side mm-hmm. from, from my own sinful perspective. Mm-hmm. We are in Canada being treated to the most amazing reality show that goes on 24-7 <laughs> down in the States <laughs> all the time. It's, we, we can watch it all day long. And it's very easy for us to say, those political evangelicals or um, what I, I want is to know how I can listen to what if I go down to the states and I'm talking to someone how I can listen to them and love them as Christ loved them rather than label them as a thank group, you this yes. group and that, because it's thank so you. easy for us to be Doubt, you know, we can be really judgmental, and Canadians are really good at being judgmental. <laughs> <laughs> because we are so quietly much, judgmental, so yes. much better than, than the, those people south of the border. Which is a good example of yeah, judgment. That, I mean, it's, it's something that we as Christians in Canada have to look at. We really do. I mean, the, it's, it's not the guys down in Texas that we're going to have to deal with. Yes. It's the people that are around us every single day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you so much. Uh, is that is that is it? Is that it? I'm finished. I th- thank you so much for saying that um, because it helps me to be clear. I mean, because sometimes a long discussion helps clarify, mm-hmm. and I don't want you to walk away with a, a misperception. And I say that to anyone here as the recording, or if you're here and want to talk to me later, please do and mm-hmm. make me because I want you to follow up and just instead of assuming. Especially if you leave with some kind of puzzle in your mind or a little 
I want you to know that you're really upset at me, not just by mistake, but that you're, and that you're really upset. I want you to be really upset, not just maybe upset. Um, I am heartbroken over, um, over political evangelicalism. I use that term specifically. Uh, there are a lot of evangelicals in the U.S. Uh, that... Um, uh, that voted differently and broadly, mm -hmm. uh, but there were there was a subsection of evangelicals that people have now capitalized that they would say they were born again Christian, but they don't necessarily believe in the divinity of Jesus, the authority of Scripture, anything that would identify them as an evangelical to most people. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, but they do it under the banner of Christ. But I know people who honestly believe in Jesus, and. Uh, honestly believe in the Bible and are very big Trump supporters okay uh, and I understand their views and I have discussions okay the question is is that um, and I think that some of their views and I, I gave a lecture on Trump and evangelicals in this setting and what I tried to argue is uh, is why why we should not sympathize and why we should sympathize with with Christians wanting Trump in office. Okay, it's a very complex issue, and we're going just great. This is great. Worse <laughs> into Trump, and, uh, but this is civil discussion. This is great. Uh, and one of the things that I wanted to affirm, instead of putting a label, is to say they actually feel that there is a loss of sanctity in the nation. They feel that there's a, there's, there's a, um, that identity politics has fragmented society. Mm -hmm. And now one might make the case that the alt-right is a new identity politic, but let's leave that to the side. But that, that this idea that, okay, society is being fragmented, we want things to cohere again. Mm -hmm. We want things to be held together again. And so people wanting the Supreme Court to have a more conservative bias towards sanctity of life in the realm of abortion uh, or maybe other issues, uh, gay marriage, for instance, or whatever. Canada is very different from America. And so I wanted to sympathize and say, OK, they're, they're looking at society and society seems to be becoming lawless. It's just like everyone is fighting for their rights. And, and like he said, I think that even the political evangelicals would uh, agree with, is that they would say maybe to uh, those who are more left of them, which is everyone if they're alt-right, um, is that, or even just conservatives, alt-right is a special category. They just sounded <laughs> provocative, right? Uh, but they would say you're helping the bees and hurting the hive. You see what I mean by that? Mm -hmm. Is that you? And so society is becoming so fragmented by rights, rights, rights. But we need to consider other more moral issues: sanctity, loyalty, authority. Uh, and of course, the ones who are wanting to press for individual rights are horrified. They're just like, "Wow! Well, if you assert authority, then uh, that's like the worst thing." And so, when Trump is in office, rather than trying to understand the moral positioning that people have in order in, in voting for Trump is that they can't even see that there's something being lost 
but but now what you're having is now you're having this pressure um, where the polarization is becoming so intense. And I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see how this next election goes because even conservatism is divided and liberalism is divided. Yep. Guys, oh, I mean, when, whenever you're done. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I want to be sympathetic to people who, uh, um, who are conservative or liberal in America and trying to understand what, what motivates them. And I think Height does a really wonderful job in that. I think I can still say I'm heartbroken over, um, I can sympathize with, uh, I'm American by the way, I can understand uh, my family and many conservatives in America of why they were motivated for the way they were motivated and to, to vote. But uh, I can also say, well, you know, I think the Christian was in a very difficult, a razor thin line. And, and I didn't want to see Christian a Christian fall on one side or the other. They needed to walk the razor's edge mm -hmm. and to say, okay, how do I vote? And I know that some people voted for Trump in order for the Supreme Court mm -hmm. to be seated, even though they didn't like Trump. Mm -hmm. And so people were trying to be savvy with their vote, and some people voted against, that, um, against Trump for similar concerns, even though they didn't agree with everything on the left. And so, I th so that's what I mean is... I think Christians should be savvy and not look at labels and try to follow the moral character of God. But but when they fall full into partisan politics, that's when I'm grieved. Mm. Because they're looking at the kingdom of God to be established through yes. through the government. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and that's what and Jesus does not call us to do that. So that's why I'm grieved. Okay, I'm going to speak some uh, as someone who currently lives in America and speak to how you can't really imagine what it's like unless you're in it and how evangelicals in America um, are like they overwhelmingly voted for Trump and you think like how can that be but unless you understand how like groupthink works and what it's like to kind of be in that current I'm not I wasn't in that current gratefully but in these communities they're so driven by groupthink that it's easy to think that if I were in that community, I would go against that. But to be in that current, like, unless you're swimming against it, you're going to go with it naturally. So any one of us, if we were in that community, would behave as they were. And so I have empathy for the people that voted for Trump because, well, I mean, America is very sick and it's very easy. The left is falling for just as strong of a ideals that the right is. They're just a little, they're more palatable ideals. And so I understand, I mean, I've been in groups that think like that. And if you're not with them, you're against them. And so you kind of just move with it. Mm -hmm. And it's so easy to believe that. And um, recently, one of the late night shows did kind of this poll. I think it was like maybe the Daily Show with Trevor Noah. But he, he talked to three people that voted for Trump last time. And they see all the things about Trump that everyone else does. All of his tweets, all, everything that makes him undesirable. And they're like, well, are you going to vote for him next time? They're like, all oh, like, yep. And they're like, well, it's like, it's the evil you know. You know, you go with the evil you know. And so it's not, it's easy to think that you wouldn't be that person, but it's not, it's not that simple. Like, America is so toxic right now. It's like, um, yeah, and so Hyde is saying that. So what? Toxic. Just <laughs> like, yeah, and yeah, and uncivil. Yeah, and, and Haidt would say that we are more, uh, we are so shaped by our community yeah. and by our intuition rather than, um, 
and sometimes having reasons or rationalizations for why we feel the way we feel. Um, either way, uh, one second, Liz, and then no. Um, yeah, just I guess kind of related to what you're just saying is, I'm just wondering how for myself I can um, get past that knee-jerk reaction or or like the elephant. Like, how can the rider have a bit more control, as it were? Because um, I I do know that I have these sort of gut reactions to things. Um, yeah, so just I, like I know, hype talked about living together um, as, a, as a helpful sort of thing but but yeah how can we how can, I've, I've been thinking a lot about this recently how can we hold our own convictions strongly and yet make sure that they're not just um, just this kind of knee-jerk reaction to things like how confirmation can, bias yeah how, yeah how can we question those things and have dialogue without just being like oh well whatever you know like your truth my truth like yeah he says that the rider is not a slave that a rider is not a slave to the elephant, but they do have free will. Mm -hmm. And so the reason can shape it. And he said that, um, he, he has this uh, saying, he goes, um, open your heart and it will open your mind. And what he means is open your heart to others and try to understand and empathize. Mm -hmm. And that can reshape how the mind understands and it, it moves the rider and maybe even moves the elephant. Uh, and appeal to people's elephants, not to their minds, he would say as well. But he says that, uh, he says that reason is, yeah, is not just a slave. It doesn't only do post hoc fabrication. It actually can serve the elephant and say, okay, elephant, you don't want to go off the cliff or you don't want to you know, go into where the tigers are or whatever. And he doesn't say that, but you can imagine. But he says that the best thing is, is to have people who disagree with you around you. Uh, if you have people who will disagree around you, then you will, he goes, one, you will start thinking through more of why you believe what you believe. Mm -hmm. And two, he goes, if you only have people who agree with you, then you never, you're never challenged. He goes, you need people around you that, that challenges you to, um, to think differently. And we, and we can only be in our little groups. Uh, it, it's really important for us to welcome the stranger and, the, and, uh, the other, the even the enemy in our midst, so that we might see what God is putting together. Um, is that in relation to this? Yeah. Okay. Uh, isn't that antithetical to how he saw that communes lasted longer than other communities? Uh, well, how, how I don't know because I think that religious communities, it, it wasn't. Uh, I think cults didn't last as long. Probably, I'm guessing. Uh, I think that there is some kind of belonging, but not necessarily cultish behavior where everyone has to do groupthink, mm -hmm. but that they're held together by something like you go to a church and many people will disagree about many things mm -hmm. on abortion or mm -hmm. Trump or whatever, and yet they're held together. Mm -hmm. and, that's and that's what holds them together. It's not because they all agree. You know? It's okay. I'll regret what Okay. Right. Interesting that you said that the uh, the chimp, we should be ninety percent, or he says ninety percent chimp and ten percent bee. Why not fifty fifty? Yeah. Um, very interesting because yesterday I attended another lecture on modern poets and how they were influ influenced by William James, mm -hmm. whose really big thing was the varieties of religious experience, 
which at the end of the lecture I realized was tremendously in individualistic mm. and away from any corporate concept. Mm. And I'm just wondering, I mean, that's part of, I mean, that's part of our ethos, Western European, particularly North American. And yet the Christian concept is we will be the bride of Christ. We will be united together. And maybe we need to explore more deeply this whole concept of community. Yeah. Because I mean, that is so strong in the scriptures. I mean, the letter to the Ephesians is so strong. But we are so keen in our Western world, especially North America, on individual rights. So maybe there needs to be... Yeah, so... Okay, I'll try to remember and respond to both of that, uh, to my both thoughts. One, I think that he's talking about that when he looks at evolutionary theory, that he sees there's more case for our chimp nature than there is for our bee nature. And I think that he's kind of going on a limb to talk about group selection. And he doesn't want to go into the social Darwinistic strand or thread. And so he's just saying we're mostly chimp. But we do need some hiveishness. Or there's a hive overlay. And so, yeah, we might have some individual competition within groups. But there's also a sense of being in a group in competition with other groups. And so, um, so yeah, I think that's what he's trying to balance there. Uh, now... In terms, I do think he thinks that we're very individualistic. <clears throat> and it, it becomes quite scary to think about totalitarianism or, or even Durkheim, who he's kind of following. Uh, can, you know, he, he made a quote from Mussolini that sounded very similar to what Durkheim was saying. And so how easy it is to slide into this kind of groupthink. Uh, and someone might say, well, Christians are into groupthink. And is that actually an antidote to the individualism that we see? I would say that, uh, yes, we need, like, as, as, as in, inheritors of the Western liberal tradition, we need to see how the New Testament and the witness of the people of God is groupish, that it is corporate. And we, we rarely submit our individuality to the group. We, in fact, would consider that harmful or negative to submit my personal will to the will of the, the body of Christ. You know, because we put so much emphasis on the individual. Interestingly, the birthplace of Western liberalism was the early church. Because uh, there's a guy named Larry Seidentop who wrote a book called The Invention of the Individual. Uh, he's not a uh, he's a, a Jewish or secular uh, scholar or both um, and he says that prior to kind of Paul's account he kind of brings it to Paul not necessarily to the biblical witness but Paul was really emphasizing that you are no longer judged by where you fit into the system but that you yourself before God neither male nor female, slave, slave nor free. Like, all of you are equal. And that was a radical because they were so groupish. And so that Christianity brought some kind of, uh, brought a new sense of individualism. And that individualism enabled there to be growth. But yeah, I do think that we've lost the sense of what actually held those individuals together. That we need to hear not just that, but we are all one in Christ Jesus neither slave nor free, but all in one in Jesus Christ. But we do need to, it's hard, and, and I can understand 
where you're coming from in terms of uh, we had a pastor who came and gave a lecture here and he he's he's in despair over the non-committal individualism in Victoria because people will not submit themselves to the church yeah. as okay I, I need to submit my own individual preference so that I become responsible for the group I become responsible for church so um, and the New Testament calls us to continually don't neglect to come together you know uh, submit yourselves to one another uh, be slaves to one another don't don't look after your own interests but look after the interests of others and we want to moderate that to say well look after yourself and then have enough energy to love as someone else but the Bible says love God and love neighbor and um, it's not like modern psychology where it says care for yourself first so that you might have enough energy to care for someone else and then have some time for God. It's rather love God and love your neighbor as a way of informing your love of self. Uh, so, yeah. Carl? I had a completely different question. Um, yeah, did you want to say something else to that? No, I just... Um, I think you could add a lot. Yeah, no, I, I actually think it goes back to Abraham. That, that Abraham and God's relationship was so totally revolutionary to the thinking of that day. Mm. But I think the enemy has just pushed us to the other extreme. I see, yeah. And, and the whole concept of, you know, spiritual but not religious. Mm -hmm. You know, in one sense, I can understand why you'd say that. But, but it's also, it's just, well, I will go on my, you know, my, my course and my journey. Right. And, and I won't be related with anybody else. That's true. And my definition of religion, like, he means religion differently than what, how I mean it. Uh, he means religion by any kind of moral community. But I think of, I separate religion and spirituality by something that's living and something that's dead. Uh, religion is uh, human, human up and trying to perform rituals where I see God's uh, spirituality not in the individualistic sense, though you're correct to, to hedge that. Is, but the Holy Spirit comes down and makes us a people. Uh, and so that's what I mean, that it is top, it's, it's from God, uh, from above, and not religion. The Tower of Babel, I consider a religious artifice. Yes, Manoa. I have a question. Um, when we're talking left and right and morality, um, does left give morality to the, like in political context, is does left mean giving morality to the government, and and left mean, or sorry, right mean giving morality to the individual? No, uh, not necessarily, uh, because the right can see that there needs to be, um, as he would define it, that libertarians want freedom of morals and freedom of markets, where the conservatives want free markets but moral regulation. We, we, need to, we need to think about how we hold this hive together, where the liberal would want regulated markets and freedom of choice. Like, you know, uh, a person should be able to, to do what, what, what they want with their body, um, whom they marry, uh, how, they, how they want to live. And so it's much more individualistic. So I would say that they're not into moral regulation as much, Theoretically, of course, they need the government to enable these kind of freedoms of the individual. Uh, but that's kind of a very 
rough, rough chopped kind of. <laughs> yeah. Very blunt, yeah. Mm. Uh, Carl. This is going back to the beginning of the lecture where he's talking about there's the different um, sources of morality and so on. So I just want to give a particular example of a way that some people think is that um, there's some Christians that would say that if, if you don't believe in God, then you're, you know, you'll become like completely dysregulated. You'll right. be, you know, Immoral. go around killing people. <laughs> okay, you won't kill people because you don't want to go to jail, but you'll be a very bad person and you'll, like, everything will just go to, right. go to hell, basically. And so, based on the reading that you've done of height and the talking about all these different types, um, is there any, through that lens, is there any insight into the the thinking of the kind of person that would make that kind of claim? Mm. Well, first, my first response would be from a biblical response to say that all people are made in the image of God. There's a, there's a seed in each of us that's made for relationship, that relationship to the transcendent. And so I believe that, uh, that we all function uh, in, in memory, you might put it, of the moral character of God. And so whether someone's a Christian or not, uh, a person who doesn't know God can be moral. So, so I agree. I understand all that. And can know and truth. I agree with that. Okay. And, and that makes sense. So I'm, I'm not looking for your answer. So, I'm looking for what would height... Oh, I see. Height, okay. In, in the way he's categorized these six different kinds of morality... How would... Okay, yeah. Like, how would he understand the kind of person that would make the claim that like well if you don't believe in God I think that he would say that that person uh, who is making that judgment of the not so the kind of fundamentalist Christian or whatever Christian yeah, like, making a comment of the person who's not a Christian height would probably say that that person is saying well you're not holding any sanctity or authority over you uh, and uh, and you're just this is my, I mean, I think that probably every, I'm just, this is a wild guess. Okay? Sure. <laughs> and I can imagine that maybe the person making the judgment is a variety, but if we're typical, okay, let's just say typical of a person saying, well, if you give up sanctity and you give up authority of God, then you become a law to yourself. And so, so Height would see that that person does not recognize that uh, that a person who doesn't hold sanctity or authority um, in the same way as this person who's making the judgment, that <clears throat> that they're not seeing that uh, this non-Christian, this unbeliever, holds actually a moral stance on care, holds a moral stance on fairness, holds a moral stance even on loyalty, or whatever those those right. And and so the person would say, "Oh, you've actually moved, you've you've moved away from the moral framework that I see, and then maybe you're misusing the moral foundations. Maybe you have a right. different balance." So Height would say they're, they're just looking at the moral foundations differently. So Height would say that that this fundamentalist kind of person, hypothetical person, would have very high view of sanctity and authority, and be blind to the. I, 
the fact that this other person might be guided by other types of morality that would keep them in uh, you know, a relatively uh, sane and law-abiding state. Yeah, that's my guess. I could be wrong, but that's my guess. Sounds like a reasonable guess. Josh? Um, if, if we, for just a second. Just wait one second. It's 9 o'clock. If you want to leave, you're not going to upset me. <laughs> you're not going to upset anyone. But if you want to continue to, this having conversation, we'll just do it for 10 more minutes, let's say. Okay. Um, all of this is extremely interesting, and I'm a huge fan of that. But if we step back one step from the particularities of of Heights theory and the particularities of, um, of a theological response to the the cultural moment that it's embedded within. Um, there's a very interesting thing that I see happening, which is people like Height or Peterson mm -hmm. or um, and their friends, Jordan and, Peterson and Jonathan Hyder yeah, friends. Yeah, and, and their uh, friends. Um, now, not when he wrote this book, but they are now. Um, and and. and some social psychology and evolutionary psychology. It's the uh, there's a weird divide that's happening. Mm. Uh, that if you believe in evolution and its implications, then you become a kind of conservative. Mm. Uh, because if you believe in evolution and its implications, you believe in something like human nature. Mm -hmm. Right. Whereas um, a, a more progressive side of it thinks it's all cultural and social conditioning. Mm -hmm. Whereas, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. th there's an interesting there's an interesting thing there where you know if you're like oh yeah no I I just believe in evolution and and, I, and I'm just like looking at things like this and you just start talking about implications like what are you some sort of right wing fanatic no no I'm just <laughs> you know so that uh. I, I find that very interesting. Um, I, I don't know if you've noticed that. Yes, or, I have. Or, or, or if you want to speak to that a little bit. Of yeah, I mean, even uh, being invited to this group where there's is predominantly atheist, and seeing that a year on or two years on, that uh, they were talking more favorably of religion, and I turn to you and I'm like, "What's happening?" And you say, "That's the Peterson effect." And I was like, wow, you know, last time I was in this atheist group, it was all people who believe in God are idiots and believe in fairy tales and nonsense. But now they're talking about archetypes and the benefits of religion. And, uh, and so, yeah, it is an interesting debate where people are starting to look at evolutionary theory in different ways. Like Haidt, who was like, well, uh, and, I, and I spoke of this in a, in a previous time because I think Jordan Peterson... I uh, just lost my train of thought as soon as I said that. <laughs> he makes me lose my thought. <laughs> just kidding. <clears throat> um, what was I saying? Um, Peterson effect. You think Jordan Peterson does something? Yeah, I don't even remember. I'm brain <laughs> Atheist framework yeah. Approving of religion in some way. Yeah, I mean, I, I see that, that they're approving, yeah, approving of religion. Uh, through Peterson and that they see, um, yeah, evolution as not, oh yeah, so like Alain de Botton and others, yeah, so the new atheists had this kind of like religion is bad, it is dangerous, we need to go toward the selfish gene, but wasn't offering people a meta-narrative. 
And it's like, okay, great. Now there's war, there's civil strife, and now you're telling me that all is meaningless and a selfish gene? That's not helping me with life. And so someone like Alain de Botton or some of the new atheists, the newer new atheists in 2.0, kind of the, the softer behavioral psychologist, pop philosophy atheist, not the hard sciences ones, uh, came along and saying, actually, we need to start using religion because it gave us something. We don't believe in God, but it gave us rituals. But Alan de Botton only got so far because it's like, well, the rituals, okay, it's giving us community. So you started seeing secular churches, atheistic churches. Uh, you know, they would, they would take money for... Um, battered women in Africa, and they would sing Queen songs and Beatles songs, Imagine by John Lennon, and all this kind of stuff. And so they were having church services. You don't hear them as much. I don't know if they're still around. But then you have, but that was, it still seemed a bit anemic. And then you have someone like Haidt coming forward. You have Jordan Peterson coming forward and saying, actually, we can have the sciences and the religion, and they're not in conflict. Religion's not a, not a byproduct. But actually, um, it's, not, it's not a virus or a bug, but actually evolution has created us to be able to, to worship and to be in community and to, to go through these practices. And, and so, yeah, evolutionary theory has been, people have been reshaping the, the story around evolution. That it's not just about individualistic selection, because when you do that, you just create a meaningless society where religion is dangerous and you do what you want. That's not very helpful. Because I need to know how to work through this conflict, and or why wake up and do my job, and Peterson and Haidt are offering that, so I can see how it, it is quite controversial. Thanks for letting getting back on track. <laughs> okay, we'll leave it there. Uh, thank you so much, and have a good Christmas.